Thanks for taking the time to listen to this NHS Employers podcast. For all the latest NHS HR workforce information, visit www.nhsemployers.org. Welcome to the NHS Employers Virtual Board podcast series. In this episode, you will hear from Claire Johnston, who is Director of Nursing and People at Camden and Islington NHS Foundation Trust. Claire, could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and your background? I'm the Director of Nursing and People, an interesting title, which I'll explain, uh, for Camden and Islington Foundation Trust which is um, a trust providing services for um, people with mental health uh, and substance misuse issues uh, in the heart of London. Um, And the director of nursing element, I think, is straightforward and understandable to people listening. But uh, the people is because I have responsibility for human resources, which is quite an unusual um, combination, but one that works very well for us, I think, um, you'll see the, um, that demonstrated throughout the podcast today about well-being for staff. What does health and well-being mean to you in your organisation and what impact has this had so far? Health and well-being is fundamental um, to the success of any organisation, but particularly, I think, in the public sector. Uh, one can't have failed over the last year to... Um, have been saddened by uh, some of the findings of both the Francis Inquiry and more latterly the Keogh Review of the 14 Hospitals Trusts Um, and in his new role um, as uh, Chief Inspector for Hospitals he said very clearly that the NHS needs to rediscover its compassionate side Um, and staff can't deliver compassionate care to patients and service users if they're not experiencing compassion from their employers. And I know that sounds obvious, although in fact there's very little hard evidence. I think there's more in acute general care to demonstrate that, for example, if you have the right levels of qualified nurses, that the outputs and outcomes for patient care will be better. In mental health, there's not very much of an evidence base. But I think common sense tells us that if people are working hours that are too long and that if your absence levels are high in an organisation, if your stress levels are high, not only is it going to affect your productivity and your bottom line, um, which, isn't, it, which is a tremendously important driver, it's going to in fact affect the way that you deal with the delivery of cost improvement programmes and um, improvement programmes and turnaround programmes in general. And in these difficult times that of course is incumbent upon us in the health service to do and there can be perhaps a tendency when you're faced with those challenges to place those challenges before your staff in one of two ways you can either say look tough year ahead in terms of the efficiency targets we've got to realize but we believe that the patient model in terms of care pathways for example is one that we can all get behind and it's going to reduce waste. But what that means is because we're introducing new models of working and new ways of doing things, that could be more difficult. You know, you're gonna maybe feel some of the emotional impact of that. Let's talk about it. Let's think about what we're gonna do together to avoid that. 
Or you can be so wrapped up in what you've got to do to deliver that latest savings target or efficiency or productivity measure that the compassion can go out the window. And then you'll certainly not deliver the target, mm -hmm. I am sure. Or if you do, you're going to do so and then look back at your sickness absence rates or your turnover and you're going to find what you may not have realized when you set out, that there's a direct correlation between the way you treat your staff and then what those um, what, what, what your workforce then represents. Um, I believe that absolutely passionately and fundamentally. That doesn't mean to say I haven't mis made mistakes along the way. Um, I have, but um, everybody has their, their limits in terms of what they can reasonably do. And I think in the NHS, we're just so fantastically fortunate. We certainly are in our trust. I think we've got some of the best staff in the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I haven't worked in lots of other places in the world, but I know we've got fantastic staff. And they're our jewel in our crown, mm -hmm. particularly when we're working with people with mental health problems. It's not expensive gizmos. We don't have those. It's our staff. And it's our staff talking with and working with on a daily basis over quite long periods of time with people whom sometimes with their problems it can be difficult to bear mm. and that's why we're keen on introducing some techniques that we've found therapeutically to be helpful for our staff mm. because if some things work for the well-being of our patients then Let's put that the other way around and see if it will help staff. And so um, I don't mean we don't do here or we shouldn't be looking at ways of improving the health and well-being of our staff with a range of public health and other measures, and I'm sure we'll come on to those. But one thing we've been doing is using something called acceptance and commitment training in the workplace. A it's ACT, but we it's called ACT makes it easier so acceptance and commitment training um, is a, a bit of a branch of CBT cognitive behavior therapy and a, and a bit of a branch of mindfulness and I know that sounds like lots of words and mm. people are thinking oh you know typically mental health but um, we deliver this just in three sessions to our staff and the staff who where we've tested it it's genuinely made a difference to their emotional resilience to change um, and a different focus and perspective for them. So issues that have been worrying them in the workplace or at home, which people can bring to work, mm -hmm. are really improved in terms of the focus and productivity they can then have in the workplace with some really simple techniques. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we should be exploiting those types of measures, which are well evidenced. There are a number of randomised control trials that have demonstrated that ACT works. Mm -hmm. Um, and if it works, then it ought to be more widespread mm -hmm. because you can't introduce the kind of tumultuous changes that we're all doing currently in the NHS without bringing your staff with you. And that's going to mean some modest investments, I believe, in making life better and bearable for them along the way. What evidence and key messages would you need to see in the business case to make you and your colleagues listen and make a favourable decision? I think fundamentally it wouldn't be any different from any other business case. Um, no one's going to go soft in the boardroom just because you're talking about issues that can engender emotion. 
Although, of course, it's important to state the facts plainly. And, and if that means then uh, indicating through the data, and that's our first issue, data and information and background, rationale, which might evidence that staff morale is at risk. So we would certainly, in any business case, want to demonstrate through the utilisation of information from both occupational health, where, for example, we observed during the changes that we went through, we experienced a growth um, in the activity of people visiting occupational health or being referred to occupational health with stress-related problems. Um, and that was being fed back to us in the reviews from occupational health. So that kind of data obviously will have to go into any business case you're constructing because the costs then of not dealing with that psychological stress definitely will translate into your sickness absence. Mm -hmm. So again, you, you only have to save a half a percent in this organisation of your um, sickness absence rates to be saving as much as a half a million pounds. Mm -hmm. So you can do that calculation for yourself or make sure that that's set down in your, in your paper so that your finance director can definitely see what the impact could be. So information that will be financially driven but is borne out by um, the impact that staff and wellbeing gaps are making in terms of detriment to the workforce. Um, I think using wider literature and information, so it's all very well just looking at your own figures, but I think any decent business case would want to consider benchmarking. Now, I know that's not always easy, but in this field, it's not difficult at all because NHS employers or the Foundation Trust Network can help you, and there's ready access, really, in this field uh, from the Borman report on to quite a lot of data that will demonstrate that... Um, to invest in something like ACT, in terms of building emotional resilience, um, you, can, you can look more broadly at the impact of uh, not having investments in those kinds of initiatives. And so staff feeling stressed was a major issue in Borman, and there's a, there's a, lot, a lot written about mm -hmm. it. Thirdly, I think taking that further and looking at um, some of the areas of Borman, uh, or possibly looking at the NICE guidelines on staff wellbeing, um, and then thinking about other literature. And there's quite a lot of published literature in this area. Um, and of course, a wonderful local resource would be your health and wellbeing board. And the trust may well have a, a link or a contact to that health and wellbeing board, and I'm sure they'll find some support from there. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, uh, through the local authorities, um, access to, uh, as we constantly do have, our overview and scrutiny committees, these are the kinds of bodies that are also very interested in the impact um, of um, changes uh, in the health service on uh, and consultations and so on, on what then happens to staff, not least because they're public body themselves that are going through change. So I think there's quite a lot of alliances that, that, that can be made. Um, and thinking about those alliances, critical to any business case for something like ACT or any other wellbeing measure, I would be looking to see what engagement there'd been with staff side um, in terms of staff side partnership and working with the unions because the unions will be a fantastic ally 
um, in any element of um, work that you're engaged in as an NHS body in terms of improving the staff wellbeing because they're absolutely committed to it as well. So it would be just plum folly not, not to have their full engagement and support. And they'll have some brilliant ideas as well for that business case. Um, and I might extend that to staff governors. We're a foundation trust, so our governing body would be interested in this. Um, and if they didn't have um, a, a specialist working group looking at it, then I think the staff governor constituency would certainly be a group of people whose views and opinions I'd want to reflect in that business case. And I think if I had all of those ingredients lined up, I'd be feeling pretty confident. How do you think having an effective health and wellbeing strategy helps to influence culture within nursing? Within nursing in particular, I think it's not only the health and wellbeing strategy that's an important influencer and convincing of our staff that we genuinely mean that we know they're only going to provide quality of care for patients if they too are cared for. I think that has to be in the nursing strategy. So I think that nurses want to not, not feel special as in they're different from other members of staff, but I think we have to recognise that the bulk of um, frontline care in the UK is provided by nurses. They're still the largest component of the workforce mm -hmm. and 99 out of 100 of them do the most fabulous job and, and 99 out of 100 go, you know, way beyond what's in an ordinary day at work, I think, to care compassionately for patients and service users. And I don't think there's a week that goes by in this job, which I feel very privileged to have, where I don't hear about a nurse who um, has gone that extra mile for patients to do something that bit special, which makes us all feel really proud. Um, and that, I think, is something Good to, good to celebrate and I think nurses like to learn how other people are coping with um, the difficulties that we're experiencing with a lot of the changes that we're going through in terms of service reprovision or reductions in services or changes in skill mix um, and you've got to keep talking so I don't think you can just rely on a written strategy for that you've got to be out there um, working with with staff on the front line we're fortunate in that we've got a very busy and productive group that we call the nursing executive who meet every month where we can talk about all of the issues that that concern nurses mm -hmm. and the challenges and um, advantages that i think jane cummins as chief nurse has brought since the arrival of the six c's mm -hmm. as a nursing strategy and compassion of course is probably the biggest of those c's um, has had a, a big impact in terms of people, and, and it moves well beyond nursing, but certainly within nursing, talking openly about compassion, thinking about what that means, what it means to provide compassion in care and to receive compassion. Um, there can be, of course, compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. If you give too much, then you can rapidly um, join the ranks of those who can become, I think, permanently damaged or leave the NHS because they've just been overly compassionate. So again, some of the protective factors that I think as an employer we have to put in emotionally come, come to play. Um, one of the pieces of work I think might be easily replicated by others um, has been quite straightforward um, in this neck of the woods. We're part of an academic science health network 
Um, that's based at UCLP, but of course there are others all around England. And we've joined forces as a chief nurses group, so all of the chief nurses of all the trusts locally, not just mental health, paediatrics, acute general, um, and mental health and learning disability, coming together with the medical directors for those um, trusts. Now I know you'll say, okay, so what? So that's just a group of medical directors and nursing directors, but I think that's quite unusual. And the focus of that was post Francis. What could we do that would be productive, fruitful, and positive? Mm-hmm. Um, recognizing that we have lots to be proud of in our in our trusts. And three themes have emerged of, of work streams that we're doing together. And one of those is on positive improvements we can make to patient experience, but the parallel work group is on things we can do to make staff's experience better. And so that stretches across the 16 trusts in our academic health science network with some quite simple um, measures and pieces of work, including um, our own trigger thermometer, um, a, a kind of simple tool of being able to know when as an organisation, in the same way that you measure when performance might be shifting, how you can feel accurately the tenor and pulse of your staff morale. Um, And we're working with an academic at UCL on that. Um, And very generously, they're sharing the literature as they go along. So as they're doing the early work on finding out what else has been written about this, it's all coming back to us as medical and nursing directors. And again, that's quite unusual. Normally the academics squirrel all this away or don't see that it could be uh, material that we can be positively using to build into the barometer tool that we're endeavouring to design. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there may be other tools out there, but I think something practical and concrete that, that we could we could use would, would be useful. I mean, there's no, of course, substitute for actually talking to staff about morale. Um, I think regularly testing how is it around here helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have a monthly pulse survey that just asks eight questions mm-hmm. of staff and we take 200 each month. So there's a big enough mm-hmm. cohort for it to make a difference, mm-hmm. but it's not so onerous as it's become sort of impossible to manage. Um, and we've used the questions that NHS employers, employers have recommended as um, the questions from the National Staff Survey that probably will have the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have to do the work, mm-hmm. and it just employers have done it all for, for everybody, and it's just a case really of picking that up and running with it. Influencing culture, vital for any um, director of nursing, and we've done some work here locally. I know others have done similar um, things to review our values. I think a lot of people post-Francis have sat down and thought, there but could there be a there but for the grace? And is there any, any element of our culture that needs to be explored and scratched at and you know thought through? So um, an exercise to uh, revise not just your values, but then to think about, is there a consistency with the behaviors that those values represent? So 
if you have a simple value such as being welcoming, it's such an easy word, but it can be interpreted on lots of different levels. Um, are we genuinely welcoming to all of our staff? Um, are we genuinely welcoming to all of our service users at all times? Um, are the services as accessible at the times of day that service users need them? All of those things, I think, emanate from a value about being welcoming. But then, what behaviours do we expect from staff and ourselves to represent what welcoming means and doesn't mean? So we've drawn up a list of those behaviours against those values. So we've made six promises to our staff and our service users about our fundamental values. Mm. And then we've set out what you would expect to receive as a service user or a colleague from your um, from, from other, other members of staff as a result of having those values in place so that they're actually our culture being lived. And on the other side, we've put what behaviours we don't expect to see. So if you are wanting to have a welcoming organisation, then you won't have achieved that if there's a brusqueness or staff are sarcastic or there's an attitude, which I know we could all describe, that is quite to the contrary. Mm. And that extends to how we then manage one another because it will be possible to let those cultural values slip. But it's incumbent on everybody then in the organisation to feel that they can challenge, in an appropriate way, colleagues who aren't meeting those values. And I think that can really help with the health of your culture. And I could give a couple of examples of that. Uh, for one, I found a group of um, staff, um, actually it was our occupational therapists, and they were looking at their monthly performance data and reviewing complaints. And the lead OT was saying to the others, but on the one hand, we're saying that we've been doing very well for how we welcome people, and we're saying that's a value that really matters to us as a team. But actually, look, we've had three complaints in the last month about, patient, about attitude mm -hmm. and how people have experienced our service. So that's not consistent with the values so what have we got wrong? And they were using then the, the difference in the measurement against what was wrong with the complaints and the values to challenge one another gently, but it was sufficient, I think, for them to be then conscious that that behaviour wasn't consistent. Um, some of our nurses have, have introduced a dignity slot at the end of every shift. So just taking five minutes as a team to come together to say, what did we do today that made a difference in terms of dignified care? And feeling confident enough to say, well, Gemma, I saw that the way that you knocked three times, which is a simple technique we use, mm -hmm. before you entered a room, and I thought you did that really well. And as time went on, they found that they can now challenge one another, again, professionally, mm -hmm. when they notice that one of their team, perhaps because they were pressed for time or for whatever reason, hasn't exhibited those behaviours that represent our value. You can then take that further to perhaps when it's the time that you need to have a difficult conversation with someone about performance. It can be hard. Mm -hmm. And you can again turn to the behaviours and say, you know, I've noticed that 
on a couple of occasions, which I'd like to talk through with you, you've not been displaying the, the, the right in, in the kind of attitude that I'd have expected. Mm. And referring to the values has made it, I think, easier to break into those conversations with surprisingly good outcomes because then staff don't feel absolutely got at or criticised mm. but can genuinely see that that alignment of their conduct with our values and what we want for our culture isn't the same. Um, now, I'm not saying we've got it perfect because that's a huge piece of work, really, but it's got to be taken seriously mm. in, in every organisation. I have to account every month. In fact, my call is later today with um, one of our non-executive directors who's my supporter on our programme on values and culture. And she asks me some very challenging things each month to make sure that I'm really doing the kinds of things to make that difference to staff well-being that the board expects.